Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, if you have a copy of the Bible uh, with you or on your phone, could I invite you to turn to Daniel uh, chapter 7. It's page 892 in the, in the Red Pew Bibles. And uh, let's step into this strange world of apocalyptic literature. And Happy New Year to you. For anyone who is kind of visiting Windsor or new, we as a church, as Stephen said, spent October and November reading the first half of Daniel, which is made up of six chapters and really six stories. And although there are some dreams and some visions in there, the material in part one is primarily narrative in nature, and I love that. In part two, the genre or, or the style changes, and it changes dramatically. It shifts from narrative to apocalyptic. And so, as many of you know, I was planning to do what lots of readers of Daniel do, and that was bail out at the end of chapter 6. Because from chapter 7 through to 12, it all becomes a bit weird. Even Martin Luther, key figure in the Reformation, said this about apocalyptic writers. They have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. But after, and I'm trying to find the right word, after a little gentle persuasion, or rather pressure, uh, I've decided to read on. And so we are going to start with Daniel chapter 7, which has been described as one of the most enigmatic sections of the Old Testament. Now, although many people do drop out, many people do call it a day before they get to chapter 7, there are others who love this stuff. There are those who can't get enough of Daniel chapter 7 to 12, who become somewhat or a little obsessed and preoccupied with the graphic imagery of beasts and battles and of number codes and of cryptic dating systems, and they love the endless opportunities that it provides for speculation and end times predictions. And so as we set out on this adventure over the next few months, I need to say something up front. I need to say that at one level, I do find this material fascinating, whereas at another, I find it head-melting, and therefore I tend to zone out, or I head for the nearest fence to sit on, because I love sitting on fences. Because whenever people start discussing and debating some of this stuff, I quite honestly, I zone out. But that's not helpful, particularly not helpful when you're a pastor. Because we say, don't we, that, that all Scripture is useful. All Scripture is useful. And therefore, we've got to confront all Scripture, even the tricky and weird bits. Plus, we need to accept the hope without the hype. And so it's vitally important that we read this together because what we actually discover is that it's aimed at us. 
And it offers incredible encouragement to us. Because you see, in the first six chapters, Daniel often interprets dreams and visions that are given to others. Whereas here in chapter 7 and verse 1 explicitly says it, Daniel becomes the recipient of the vision and subsequent visions. And so we need to understand that the last six chapters focus on the message that God wants to get across, that God wants to communicate, not to the rulers of this world, which is what he, wanted, which is what he did in chapters 1 to 6. But from 7 to 12, God wants to get a message across to Daniel, to the people of God, to us. The title for this series was Keep the Faith. The title for this series still is Keep the Faith. Because whatever else you take from this chapter today, whatever interpretation you like or don't like, whatever way you process the symbolism and the imagery, at the heart of this material is an encouragement. An encouragement for the people of God in exile to keep the faith and for the people of God in subsequent generations, i.e. us, to keep the faith. Because here's the harsh reality. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough being a Christian in our world. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be outright defiance. You will be tempted. Many of you are tempted, will be tempted to pack it in. But the big, the relevant message in here for the exiles and for us is this. Hang in there. Hang in there because when all is said and done, God is in control. God will sort it out. The judge of all the earth will do right. His kingdom will come. His will will be done right across the board. And so hear this, dig in. Stay focused. Keep the faith. Because it's way better to stay faithful and take the hits. Way better. Stay faithful and take the hits than to fall in with other kingdoms and then experience the full force of God's impending and inevitable judgment. And I'm going to keep saying that. I'm going to keep coming back to that. That is what I want you to hear. It's way better to stay faithful and take the hits than to fall in with the other kingdoms of this world and experience the full force of God's impending and inevitable judgment. So, with that in mind, let's listen to Daniel 7. Just before we do that, let me give you a couple of definitions or a few definitions of apocalyptic so that we're, we're all clear on the kind of material that we are reading. One definition is it's a term that's applied to any book that claims to reveal the future or last things. Simplest definition, Revelation, which is why the last book of the Bible bears that title. Simply apocalyptic literature reveals things. But here's my favorite definition from Dale Ralph Davis, who draws from a number of other sources. Roughly, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people who are despised and cast off by the world with a vision 
of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and the rebellion of human history. And apocalyptic literature communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. And so, let's take a deep breath. Let's do what we often do at Windsor. Let's stand and let's enter dreamland. And we're going to take time to read this. If at any point you feel you need to sit down, do sit down, okay? But I do want to take time to read this through, and I'm going to read it slowly. I'm often accused of reading far too fast, so I'm going to read it slowly. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so you need to realize that we're back now before the writing on the wall. Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird, and this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful, and it had large iron teeth, and it crushed and it devoured its victims, and it trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was laid in his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. 
But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and more terrifying with its iron teeth and its bronze claws. The beast that crushed, the beast that devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns in its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth and it will be different from all the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down, crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. And after them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones and he will subdue three kings and he will speak against the Most High and he will oppress his holy people and he will try to change the set times and the laws and the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time and times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled and my face turned pale. Grab a seat. So, Daniel's dream starts with four different, grotesque, hybrid, or at least three of them are, beasts. And they're rising up out of a great chaotic sea, which in itself is a, is a symbol for a impending trouble. And the first beast is like a lion with the eagle's wings. The second is like a lopsided bear. The third is like a leopard with four heads and four bird wings. And the fourth is obviously unlike anything. It's terrifying and it has iron teeth and it has ten horns and as Daniel reflects on the ten horns, this other little horn comes up and it uproots three other horns and this little horn has human eyes and it's got a mouth that speaks boastfully. Love the fact that some of you are smiling at me. <laughs> now if you jump down to, to verse 17, we, we know we're told that these four beasts are four kings. It says it there. So they symbolically represent four kingdoms that are going to rise up against heaven and are going to rise up against God. Now, down through the years, different people have had and have held different views on which kingdom each beast represents. The most popular take on these is what? So let's get a bit of congregational participation. So... The first beast, the lion, most people think represents where? Babylon. Second beast, lopsided bear. 
were Persia, Medes, Medo-Persian, bit of debate there. Third one, leopard, represents Greece. Fourth one, terrifying one, represents Rome, Roman Empire. But you know something we've got to be careful? We have got to be so cautious here. Because although the, the, the first beast definitely seems to refer to Babylon, the visions, big word coming, multivalent imagery. Does anybody know what multivalent means? Imagery that is open to different interpretations and applications. And because of this vision's multivalent imagery, it means we've got to be very, very careful in trying to nail down specific historical identities with the remaining three beasts. As one commentator says, rather, the fourfold pattern simply informs us that evil kingdoms will succeed one another until the end of time. And that's probably where I'm going to put myself. With this guy who's got a great name. You see, the real issue here is to recognize and realize that a succession of evil and ungodly kingdoms will rise up against God, will rise up against his faithful creatures. But, and now I'm about to kind of jump ahead, but let me say this at this stage anyway, but... Those evil kingdoms, ungodly kingdoms, they will not, they will never succeed long term. They will come and they will go. But there is a king, and there is a kingdom that is eternal, that will last forever. And at the end of the day, God will eventually deal with all these other beasts and kingdoms. He will judge God will have the final say. God will have the final victory. God wins. Now, in terms of when, when's all that going to happen? Well, in terms of a time and a time frame, that, that remains to be seen. But as I've said, I'm, I'm kind of rushing ahead. So, so go back to the text. And go to the latter half of Daniel's vision because at the end of verse 8, in the first part he sees these four beasts, but at the end of verse 8, the small horn of the fourth beast starts mouthing off. It starts boasting. And as Daniel hears it, sees it, all of a sudden he catches a glimpse of a courtroom where thrones are set in place, and he says the Ancient of Days takes his seat. Now, the Ancient of Days is an explicit title for God. It's got nothing to do with age, but it conveys that he is majestic, not, not frail. And as Daniel describes what he sees following verse 8, you'll notice that fire is a dominant Symbol and image. And in the Bible, fire symbolizes God's what? 
Sorry? Judgment, yeah. Anything else? Presence, yes. And purification, yes. And from what we read in verses 11 to 12, it's God's judgment that is being leveled, that's being dished out. Against the fourth beast in no uncertain terms, you'll see. Plus, the other three are stripped of their authority, but they're allowed to hang around. God's terminal and ultimate victory over evil is a given, but it's going to take a while. There's no exact, there's no clear-cut time scale. Other kingdoms will come and go. Other kingdoms will strut their stuff on the world stage. But at some point in future time, thrones will be set in place. And a sentence will be handed down. And what is certain, and herein lies the hope, what is certain is that the Ancient of Days will kill the beasts. Righteousness will prevail. Fire will fall. Salvation, deliverance will come. And at this point, as Daniel processes this, hears this, sees this, he then also catches a glimpse of one who is like the Son of Man, or a Son of Man. Could this be the one bringing salvation? Maybe. And again, and you know this, Many of you know this discussion and debate has raged for years concerning his exact ID. And so read some commentators and they will say, well, this is a reference to Daniel at this stage. One like a son of man. He kind of sees himself. Others say, no, it, it refers to Israel. Others say, no, it refers to a string of kind of lesser deliverers leading up to Christ. But based on the fact that he comes from heaven, that, that's clear from what it says. So, so in some sense, he could be divine. He's like a son of man, so human. He is a king and he has a kingdom. Given that all peoples of every language will worship him, Given that the term son of man is chosen by Jesus to refer to himself in the New Testament on numerous occasions, and given that Jesus appears to refer to Daniel 7 when he's standing before the high priest and his cronies in Mark chapter 14, I think it's a pretty safe bet, non-scriptural term. I think it's pretty safe to assume and conclude that as we let Scripture interpret Scripture, and that's what we've got to do, this one, like a son of man, is most definitely, probably, could be, Jesus. But you see, we're jumping forward, and we can. But the emphasis of this stream for the people of God in exile was to inform and to encourage, it was to expand their vision of the future. It was to get them to focus on the ancient of days and the one like a son of man. It was to get them to focus on a majestic judge and a reigning king. 
whose kingdom will never be destroyed. Because you see, that kind of vision of the future offers perspective that fuels hearts with hope and expectation. Let me say this again, because this is so important. This is what this is about. This God-given vision of the future offers perspective that fuels hearts with hope and expectation because this future vision lets people know, do you know something? God's still in control. God is in control. God has got the big picture sorted. For now, for a period of time, it may not look like it. Certainly doesn't feel like it. But whoever said it was going to? Whoever promised this was going to be easy, this was going to be pain-free? It will be scary. It will be frightening living in exile. Various kings and kingdoms will flex their muscles. They will make life, our life, your life, my life, everyone's life miserable. Other kingdoms will come who will wreak havoc. But God has the future in hand. And if only you can see the secret, this truth behind history, it may not keep you from pain, but it should keep you from panic. It may not keep you from being fearful, but it should keep you from becoming frantic. And for beleaguered exiles in Babylon, this was potential music to their ears. God's still in control, despite appearances. And for us, it's also meant to strike the odd note or two, because you see, it enables us to live now in the presence of the future. It's so important that we learn this. Live now in the presence of the future. God's promised future. And so as, as we look around us today, at worldly kingdoms that are causing mess and mayhem, worldly kingdoms that are instilling terror and fear and dread, and I don't want to be specific, but feel free to fill in the gaps. But isn't it good to know that in spite of what we see, in spite of their bravado and their swagger, in spite of their apparent success and their sway, God's in control, and God will sort them out someday, one day. But let's move on. Because as Daniel's left reeling, to quote verse 15, he's troubled and he's disturbed by all of this. He turns to one of those who's standing there for an explanation. Now remember, up to now, it's Daniel who's been referred to for the explanations and the interpretations. And now here he is with the shoe on the other foot. He's turning to someone else and explain this. Now who this one he turns to is, it's probably an angelic intermediary of some sort. But in the space of two verses, this interpreter boils it all down and kind of provides what must have been a massive dose of encouragement, not only for Daniel, but for the exiles and also for us. Look again at verses 17 and 18. 
The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom, will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. You see, as a result of those two verses, there's, there's no way anyone can actually say, I have no idea what that vision's about. Because here's it explained in a nutshell. And it boils down to this to kind of quote David Helm. While ungodly and arrogant kings will continue to succeed one another on, on the world stage, and they will, and they do. Don't be anxious. Don't be alarmed. Because God will see to it that people will, his people will receive an everlasting kingdom. And before we move on, and Daniel can't quite leave it at that, by the way. But before we move on, let me say it again. God wins. God has your future in his eternal kingdom. Safe in the long term. But Daniel's fascinated. He's fascinated by that fourth beast. The radically different one with its iron teeth and its bronze claws and its ten horns and its one smaller one that replaces three of the originals, which goes on, as it says, to wage war against the holy people of God and beats them, or at least seems to, until the Ancient of Days pronounces judgment. Daniel wants to know more. And let's be honest, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Well, the, the interpreter obliges. And he clarifies, yeah, this beast is different. And you know something? His sphere of influence is vast. And so he says, the domain of this beast is universal. It's going to devour the whole earth. He's going to trample it. He's going to crush it. And then he moves on to the, the horns and he says, ten kings will rise, followed by another who will put down three of the kings. And that king is going to voice off. And he's going to voice off against God and he's going to oppress God's holy people for an unknown period of time. And again, we're into debatable territory. Because who's the 11th horn? And it's been a point of contention for years. It's been a point of contention forever. And some think he's already come. And so there are those who take us back to even before Jesus. There are others who say, no, no, no. He came kind of second century AD. Whereas others tend to think that this horn has yet to come on the scene and therefore they reserve the entirety of Daniel's vision for a future antichrist. And along with others, I am reluctant to be prescriptive and to be dogmatic because as one commentator says, we must get used to the idea that in this genre, in apocalyptic literature, visions consistently collapse one epoch in time upon another. And so we've got to be very, very careful about following an overly rigid or reductionist 
interpretive scheme. But what's more important? And as I say, people do get intrigued by this. But what for me is far more important is the bigger story and the bigger picture. And what's more important is what is said by the angel in verse 26, the interpreter next, after he explains this. He says, listen, God, and this is the message I've been wanting to get across, and I hope I have at some level got it across amidst my rambling. God is going to judge. And you see this outspoken rebellious king and kingdom, it's going to be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And in addition, God's kingdom is and will be given to the holy people of the Most High. And this kingdom will never pass away. And all rulers and all kingdoms will serve and obey him. And so deliverance is sure. It's promised. There is hope. There is a bright future. There will be a tidal wave of justice. There will be an end to all evil. God will see to it. God is working out his purposes. God is in control. And yes, at present, there's conflict. And there is hostility between the evil forces of this world and God and his faithful followers. And although this road is long and this road is winding and it's going to become more and more dangerous and we're probably going to take more and more hits, the rulers of this age, they will keep doing their damnedest to wear out the saints of the Most High. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be scared by that. Don't become disillusioned by that. But keep the faith. Catch a glimpse. Catch a vision of the future, God's future, your future. Because one day, do you know, as it says at the end of this text, one day the court will sit in judgment. The Ancient of Days is going to sort this all out. And you and I will be given and will dwell in his kingdom forever and forever. And whatever else you take this morning from Daniel chapter 7. And all its complexity. Please allow that vision to spark optimism and inspire worship. And so... We sing blessing and honor, glory and power be unto the Ancient of Days. From every nation, all of creation, bow before the Ancient of Days. Every tongue in heaven and earth shall declare your glory. Every knee shall bow at your throne and worship. You will be exalted, God. Your kingdom, it won't pass away. O Ancient of Days. And so for us now, We live in the presence of the future.